When I first came to America, I came to do my internship as a doctor in a small hospital in New Jersey. I worked in the ER, the emergency room, and saw all kinds of terrible things. I saw people at their most scared, scared to death. But one experience in particular changed the entire way I thought about medicine, about how I saw the relationship between our bodies and our minds. It happened that I had a patient come to see me, and I picked up the chart. And on this chart, it said this patient has cancer. So I told him, I said, "I'm sorry, but you have cancer." It only took seconds to see his body react. I could see his face change. I could feel his blood pressure go up. He became, in one word, sicker before my eyes. Two minutes later, I realized I'd made a terrible mistake. I had picked up the wrong chart. So I said, "I'm so sorry. It isn't you. You don't have cancer." And in that split second, his biology changed again before my eyes. And it really was from that era, one of the low points of my career as a physician, that I started to ask the question. What is the power of this mind of ours that can not only conceive of the Big Bang, but can also affect our very own bodies at a cellular and molecular level? And really, I've never stopped asking this question. I think we're increasingly capable of showing,、uh, when we manipulate the brain in certain ways, that we can change thoughts. We can change this experience in some ways, so I think it gives some credence to the idea that maybe that's where the thought is. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. When I think of the mind, I also think of the brain. Are they one and the same? What is their relationship? So I wanted to talk to someone who knows the brain intimately. Who better than my old friend, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, neurosurgeon, writer, and yes, TV host? I've watched him most of my adult life on CNN. Can I just say, when people say they've watched me their entire adult life, yes, makes you feel old. That's all it does is make me feel old. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? My parents,、um, you know, both automotive engineers. They both came here in search of that great American dream at that time. You remember the, the Auto City, and the, the, this was the time that it was happening. So they got their,、uh, finished their school here in the states, and then moved to to Michigan, moved to Detroit. That's the Motor City. Ended up spending most of my childhood in a very small town, about four thousand people,、uh, in fairly rural Michigan. What made you want to go to medical school? My grandfather, my mom's dad, got sick. He had a stroke, and he was in the hospital. We were very close.、Um, I was about eleven or twelve years old, 
and I used to go visit him in the hospital a lot. It was the first time I'd ever been in a hospital. And the doctors, you know, would come and take care of him, and I would be that, you know, 10 or 11 or 12-year-old kid who was kind of annoying, asking a lot of questions, and sort of came to the realization that this was their job. Mm-hmm. I don't think I really fully appreciated that, that up to that point, that, that being a doctor was a job. So who is it or what is it that falls in love with the brain? <laughs> is it the brain? <laughs> so we're getting into it now. That was a good shot across the bow there. I was, I was deeply immersed in the gray matter, and all of a sudden you, you took me out about 30 layers into this consciousness that I'm trying to still fully appreciate. Um, the brain itself, though, when I first saw it, was a very um, indelible experience for me. I, I knew it at the time that it was I was being impacted even if I think back on it, whatever, now 25, 30 years later, I still have that same feeling looking at it. There are a few things, I think, in life that are truly wondrous. This was wondrous to me, you know? It was wondrous for just its appearance, but it, it was wondrous for everything that I think it represented and, and all the secrets that it held. It's, you know, it's somewhat um, akin to my experience as well. I didn't want to go to medical school. I wanted to write uh, fiction and books. And my father was a cardiologist and he wanted me to go to medical school. (laughs) So he gave me books on my 14th birthday that all had physicians as protagonists in in these fiction books. Mm -hmm. Somerset Mom, things like Mm -hmm. The Razor's Edge of Human Bondage. And I was so fascinated by these characters, fictional characters that, uh, and they were all physicians that decided to go to medical school. Your father's plan worked. Yeah, it worked. (laughs) And then, you know, after my internship and residency, I got interested in neuroendocrinology. Mm -hmm. And this was a great time in neuroendocrinology in the 70s, because there was a technique to measure things in in the circulation. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it occurred to me that Mm -hmm. whatever was happening in this invisible realm that we call the mind or consciousness was being translated into biological responses. How does the brain, which is a three-pound piece of meat, literally, how does it conjure up the whole universe? Hmm. And you probably know this uh, doing surgery. You can kind of tickle it with a probe and you can evoke a memory or a feeling or a thought or even a perceptual experience. It's like Aladdin's lamp, you, you know, scratch it and it conjures up what we call everything. Have you been in the operating room for, for brain operations? You must have done it during your residency. A lot, yeah. You know, I have been doing it since 93 now. So it's been a long time, 25 years. Yeah. And it is still my favorite thing that I do. There's a joy because it's so empowering, I think, to be able to do something. You know, so, so much of the time people see trauma unfold, can't do anything about it. You feel like it's just this thing you must observe. Here, you know, we get to do something about it. From the beginning, as soon as someone is in, the, in you know, asleep, we'll take these pins and, and put them into the head to basically hold the head in place. That it kind of becomes almost a little slower at that point. You can imagine slower music being played at that point. You pull the, the skin back. The skin, interestingly enough, out of the whole operation that we do on the brain, the skin is the only part of it that would hurt That's if the it. patient were awake. Amazing, isn't it? Nothing else hurts. 
And after we open the skin, we allow them to wake back up. So they're actually awake for the brain part of part the operation. Part of the operation. Yeah. So we can do that because the brain really, it's not going to be painful to yeah. them. So after we take off the skull, because we make these burr holes, and then we use a saw to connect the burr holes, remove the bone, and now you're looking at the outer layer of the brain called the dura. Just even that is a pretty spectacular thing. This glistening thing. Yeah, it's this glistening thing. It's, it's, it, you see, this is the first time you see the brain pulsating. Mm. For me, it's a magical sort of thing. It's, you see that pulsating, you see all the blood vessels that are sort of laid out on the brain. To imagine, as you talked about, what that part of the brain does that I'm looking at, it's a left temporal, that's, that's probably speech. 25 years later, endlessly fascinating to me. Our brain is its own galaxy. We have only, only begun to understand what it is capable of. And that's all a preface to say that I think it is quite possible and increasingly uh, being shown that combinations of neurochemicals in certain areas of the brain in response to certain stimuli are what we think of as consciousness, thought, awareness. And I think that lies in the brain. We know almost everything about the neural correlates of experience or what we call the neural correlates of consciousness. Same thing, you know, because what we call consciousness is experience, basically. How do we experience anything? This conversation, people are listening to us. They're having this experience because they're conscious beings. And they can interpret these noises that we're making into thoughts, mm -hmm. and they're probably listening to this and agreeing, disagreeing, sparking their imagination, all of that. Mm. And where we are with technology today, there's no experience that you have that cannot be mapped out in the brain. You're saying that is a good thing, right? Yes. Our emotions, somebody says, I'm in love with you, and they're serious about it. Your biology is totally different if they say you're a fake than when they're in love with you. Well, how do you think you would uh, feel if you looked at your own brain? I do. I've looked at my brain on a CAT scan. What was that like for you? I mean, It was amazing. It's watching, you know, me watching my thoughts in a physical realm. Are you capable of removing yourself and looking at your own mind? It's all I do. <laughs> I live there. I mean, I'm being honest with you. I've spent last 35, 40 years observing my mind, observing my emotions, and observing my biological responses, and then realizing that every biological response, every emotional response, and even every thought is borrowed. Is there a downside in living that conditioned response life? And I, and I know that's going to sound like a silly question, but because free will is always the, the great aspiration, right? But if we evolved into these conditioned responses for reasons, right? Because my parents chose a certain culture. They thought that was the best culture. They imposed that on me. Based on their experiences, they think this trajectory of life is the way to go. I'm, you know, an Indian living in the United States. That's, you know, because of the Indians living in the United States before me. There are certain things that we do. Isn't sort of some of the groundwork done already in, in this regard? I mean, is a conditioned response the wrong response? 
evolutionary biology would say it's not. It's uh, all right. about survival and propagation of the species. Yeah. And of course, it's also propagation of the cultural identity yes. and all the identities you've taken. Right. But if you want to know reality, then whether it's convenient or not, then you will see that uh, every identity you assume is provisional. I'm curious that you refer to it that way, as, a, as especially as a neuroendocrinologist, because th- th- this could be just the, as you say, there's no who or what. It's the relationship of all these different structures and these different chemicals and the different amounts, the different times. I mean, I find it fascinating now, even since I finished training, so you know, less than 20 years, we weren't manipulating the brain in a way to to try and target things that would be considered uh, in the past psychiatric illness, functional illness, things like treatment-resistant depression, right? The idea that, that now you could have somebody who is profoundly depressed, so depressed that they've, you know, they've, had, they've tried to take their own lives, they've been resistant to all the various medicines out there that increase the various levels of neurochemicals, and then taking a you know, 0.35 millimeter probe and putting it into a specific area of the brain called area 25 and stimulating or inhibiting, there are functional areas of the brain. Think of them as switch boxes, I guess. And if you stimulate the switch box in someone who's depressed, you, you could actually inhibit their depression or, or increase their, their happiness. And I think we're increasingly capable of showing uh, when we manipulate the brain in certain ways, that we can change these thoughts, we can change this this experience in some ways. So if we can manipulate the brain and change the experience, I think it gives some, some lends some credence to the idea that maybe that's where the thought is. That is the argument for the idea that the brain is the source of all experience. There's the subjective mode, I'm experiencing these right. thoughts, I'm depressed. There's the objective mode, which is this is the biological correlate. Mm-hmm. And it's practical and it should be pursued. But let's go a little bit deeper into this whole idea. Just like I can stimulate the brain and get rid of your depression mm-hmm. or get rid of your hunger, let's say, I can do the same thing. If I play a song to you that brings back joyful memories, I can also do therapy and the brain chemistry can respond to Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So are the mind and the brain the same thing? And it seems they are. Mm. They are. Mm -hmm. They are the same thing. And this is what leads to what current science calls the hard problem of consciousness. You know, if you're embedded in a certain belief system and, you know, everything is explained through that belief system, it becomes real. You know, what? it doesn't matter whether it's real or not. But there's another way of looking at what we call physical experience. Before I can call anything an object, before I can call this a coffee cup, or before I can call this my hand, or before I can call this a body, or before I can call that a brain in surgery, before you can call that a Mm. physical object, Mm. it's an experience. And what experience is it? It's a perceptual experience, right? Moreover, it's a human perceptual experience. 
It's not the experience of an insect with a hundred eyes. Mm -hmm. There are as many experiences as there are types of brains, species-specific brains. So now we have a conundrum. What is physical reality? What we call physical reality, humans, what we call physical reality, is the interpretation of a perceptual experience. I can choose to look this way and see the color red and look this way and see the color purple or blue. Where is the color blue? Nobody can tell you. Okay? Where is sensation? Nobody can tell you. You can see, oh, this is the neural correlate of sensation or color or emotion. So if you trace back every experience back to its source, you end up with this nothingness. All that experience is happening in consciousness. It's known in consciousness. It occurs in consciousness. It is experienced in consciousness. Where is this consciousness? Can't find it. Why can't I find it? Because it's not an object. It doesn't have a form. If it doesn't have a form and it's not an object, it's dimensionless, it's nothing. And this nothing is mysteriously causing the experience of everything. All those sensations get processed, if you will, in the brain. I mean, in some ways you're describing the brain like a big receiver then of all these things, right? It's a, I look at the brain and as you know, you can't tell looking at the brain, male, female, race. I mean, maybe if someone's very old, their brain starts to look different, you know, it starts to shrink more. But for the thing that maybe is not the home of I, mm -hmm. but maybe the home of identity, mm -hmm. it really doesn't have an identity of its own. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's amazing. Three pounds of meat with no identity of its own, and yet it conjures up everything, including yourself. Hold that thought and try to picture your brain actually holding it while we take a moment. This episode of Infinite Potential is brought to you by Parachute. Sleep is one of the biggest secrets to a long and healthy life. So having the right sheets that make you feel happy and comfortable can go a long way. That's why Parachute uses only the highest quality materials like 100% long staple Egyptian cotton and pure European flax to make their sheets. Plus, they never use harmful chemicals or toxic synthetics. So you can feel good about using their natural linens in your home. Parachute makes very comfortable home essentials like sheets, pillows, robes, towels, and all things soft and wonderful. I have enjoyed my own parachute sheets very much. Visit parachutehome.com infinite for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, comfortable home essentials. That's parachutehome.com infinite for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, comfortable home essentials. They offer a 90-day trial, so if you don't love your new stuff, just send it back. Good health starts with a great night's sleep. 
I'm talking with Dr. Sanjay Gupta about the brain and the mind. Maybe it's Sanjay's long experience as a TV journalist, but I kind of get the feeling that he's interviewing me. Is there free will? Free will has dominated philosophical discourse for thousands of years, and nobody still agrees on that. And I've struggled with it a lot. So as soon as you're born, your parents told you, you're of Indian origin, but you're American. You're male. Okay, this is your background. This is your identity. And then for the rest of your life, you reinforce that conditioned mind based on cultural history, based on all kinds of history. You know, you're you're basically a product of culture, of religion, of economics, of race, of migratory habits through eons of time. But if you become self-aware and you can observe your mind and realize that I am the observer of the mind, now you can choose consciously. And that's where the Indian traditions of wisdom are very valuable because they have a word for this. They call it freedom, moksha in Sanskrit, mm-hmm. which means freedom. And the freedom of is from the prison of your own conditioning, which is also loosely called karma. So karma is the conditioned mind that uh, is very predictable. Very predictable. You meet somebody on the street, you say you're you're an idiot, you're an asshole, you see their blood pressure rise. Or you say, no, you're the best person in the world, but you see a different response. Mm. So you're at the mercy of every stranger on the street. So that is how malleable consciousness is. But it has to still work through the human brain. So right now I can imagine my brain having this experience with you right now. Mm and our frontal cortex being activated. But I can also imagine the frontal cortex of people who are listening to us, wherever they are. So we right now are influencing the frontal cortex of not only each other, but everybody else across the world who's listening. If we are all such individuals with all of our own background and history and all the things that make us related, unique, what would explain then, based on the theory, you know, this, this curtain may not be, it's not blue, it's these photons that are activating certain parts of the brain. What would make it that we have such shared experiences? What is the likelihood that you and I would both look at this and describe it in the same way if it's all basically just a, a individualized perception uh, of, of what's happening here? In our case, it's the hypnosis of social conditioning. Uh, using a human nervous system. This is not a shared experience for parrots or birds or honeybees. You know, honeybee goes to a grove, comes back to the hive, and does a few seconds of what is called a waggle dance. And all the other honeybees know exactly where to mm. go, go to get their honey for that flavor. Right. What is that language, the waggle dance? It's beyond my comprehension. <laughs> Okay, what is the world that honeybee is experiencing is beyond my knowing. Our shared experience is a result of the hypnosis of recycled conditioning, and now it's our reality. 
as humans. Now, what is the advantage of knowing this? Once I get rid of all constructs mm. and understand their magical lies, then I have the freedom now to create new constructs. Do you think that the hard question about consciousness can ever be answered? How can you answer something where, where the basis upon interpreting it is potentially faulty? We never know what reality is. We only know what our perceptions of reality are. And these are human perceptions. Is, is there a reality? Only as potential. That's what we're calling this series, Infinite Potential. <laughs> I set you up. <laughs> there is a reality. There is a reality. It, it, the reality is the consciousness which conjures up every possible experience. We've now come up with the idea that there are two trillion galaxies. There are 700 sextillion stars. Mm. There are uncountable trillions of planets. There are little planet is a speck of dust in an infinite reality mm -hmm. that if you looked at planet Earth as a grain of sand in all the beaches of the Earth would be an exaggeration. Then you look at human beings on top of that, mm -hmm. then you're not even visible out there. And yet you can conjure up all these constructs. I always feel, and I mean this honestly, I always feel so good when I talk to you. No way. Despite the fact that you tell me that I'm smaller than a grain of sand and that my entire life has been one of conditioned responses. Totally predictable, devoid of free will. What am I doing here? What does my life mean? This is the big question. Who am I? What am I doing here? What is the purpose of my life? What do I want? When you start to ask these questions, it opens the window to a different reality. If the premise is that I'm, I'm very small, and as hard as I may try to step outside of my own mind, to observe it, to make myself not someone just full of conditioned responses, what does it still mean, though? What difference does it make? It makes a huge difference, because all the things that we're doing right now to our world, you know, war, terrorism, eco-destruction, extinction of species, climate change, internet hacking. This is all coming from the conditioned mind. So if I could step back and say, if this is all the conditioned mind that is now risking human extinction and mm. life on this earth, mm. can I step back and create collectively an identity that is based on relationship and inseparability of all existence? What people feel when they feel love is an actual experience, right? Mm -hmm. And that's inseparability. So what is love? It's just seeing yourself in another person. What is beauty? It's seeing yourself in an object. This coffee cup is beautiful when you realize it's a perceptual creativity in the same way as your body. The body and this coffee cup and the brain, they go together. But they are actually me. I am experiencing brain, body, mind, and cup, all as a unified activity within myself. And this me is not physical, so don't have to worry whether it's going to be born or dying. I don't feel like I, I think about it very much. And I've thought about not thinking about it, death, that is. Well, I mean, at some point, everybody thinks about it. 
when you grow old, when you're facing death, or somebody dies in your family, or somebody gets a terminal illness, you will think about it. You know, I was six years old, living in Bombay, or what is now called Mumbai, with my grandfather. My father was a cardiologist training in England. And one day we got a telegram from England that my father had passed all his exams. He was now a member of the Royal College or fellow mm. of the Royal College. Big deal those days. Sure. He was so a is. cardiologist. My grandfather was so excited. He was an old army sergeant. He took us to the rooftop. He fired some rounds from his rifle into the sky. Then he took us to a movie, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And then he took us to a carnival. And then in the middle of the night, he must have been so excited, he died. So the next thing I know is he's being taken to the cremation grounds. And what I knew as my grandfather, who took us to the movies the day before, is now in a bottle and a bunch of ashes, which could be fill up my fist. (laughs) And an uncle of mine said, so what is life? Yesterday he was taking the kids to this carnival and today is a bunch of ashes. Mm. That triggered in six years old my quest for what is real. Since we sort of understand this at a fairly young age, that as much as we'd like to believe, no matter what, we are going to die one day. That is a certainty, right? Yes. I mean, and no one thinks, oh, I'm not going to die. I mean, when you get older in age or if you're dealing with some sort of illness, you're thinking about it probably nonstop. But it, it, it struck me, I thought maybe I was unusual, that I didn't think about it really. I, I, you know, it wasn't. And it's a protective response. So I'm protect. I'm I'm protecting myself in some sure, way. Sure, but if if you were thinking about it all the time, you would be living in anxiety. So is it different for you? Every night I practice conscious death, and this is what I do. I sit in my bed. I start with what is existence, <laughs> and I'm not being metaphysical about it. Existence is anything that exists right now, okay? This hand exists, this body exists, this furniture exists, this color exists. Right. Then what I do is I close my eyes, and now suddenly one aspect of existence is gone. Mm -hmm. What am I experiencing with my eyes closed? If I pay attention to it, I'm experiencing sensations, sounds, and thoughts. That's it. And then if I shift my attention from sound... Only into sensation, that's all I experience, is sensation. If I shift my attention from what is having this experience of sensation, I come to the conclusion, I am. So right now, my experience of existence is only sound, sensation, and thought. As I slip into the dream state and then into the deep state, all of that disappears. But I am still there. Mm-hmm. without having an experience. In deep sleep is the mystery of existence. Stress is a worldwide epidemic. Stress is part of life, but it can very easily affect our overall well-being. That's why we are partnering with Calm, the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. If you head to calm.com slash infinite, you'll get 25% off 
a calm premium subscription which includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress and focus, including a brand new meditation each day. There are also sleep stories, which are bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax. Right now, Infinite Potential listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash infinite. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash infinite. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash infinite. Get calm and stop stressing. There's a reason half of business travelers do not use their company's chosen travel management platform. Booking business travel is still ridiculously outdated, time-consuming, and costly. If you're frustrated with your company's travel management program or lack thereof, I highly recommend you look into TripActions. With 24-7 proactive support around the globe, and incentives for employees to save on travel expenses, companies large and small see over 90% adoption and save up to 34% on travel spend when they use trip actions. Reshape your company's business travel today. Go to tripactions.com infinite. Complete a 30-minute demo with a trip actions account executive and you'll get a $100 Amazon gift card. But it's this month only. Tripactions.com slash infinite for a free demo and a $100 Amazon gift card. Tripactions.com slash infinite. I'm with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who not only performs brain surgery almost every week, but also explores the world. Recently, Sanjay filmed a new series called Chasing Life for CNN. In it, Sanjay explores the globe to see how our diverse traditions and ways of approaching health and well-being shape us. I was particularly interested in one episode he filmed in Norway, where it's dark and cold eight months of the year. Yet, it is often ranked as the happiest place on earth. I realize this is about how we affect our health through perception. In Norway, Sanjay met a woman who had suffered from depression until she took steps to go out and engage with the nature all around her. A simple act and a life changed. That first hike, it felt amazing. do it. My body can actually do more than I think that it can do. It was a really great feeling, really. Like I'm on top of the world kind of feeling. You've gone through a lot in your life and you've tried lots of different things to, to heal yourself. How did this place help heal you? I feel humble. It's little me against nature. But at the same time, I feel like I, I can achieve something. I could see why you would never get used to this. No. And you shouldn't get used to this. Some things in life and nature should always feel awesome. Back here in New York City with me, 
I wanted to know if Sanjay, a surgeon by training, thought our minds can affect how we heal. I'm definitely in the camp that we can influence our own healing. I think in many ways it intuitively made sense that uh, patients, for example, you, you, you may have had the same experience. There were patients who I, I knew from right when I saw them, and I'm talking outside of their vital signs and all the measurable things, I could tell this was a patient that was likely to, to, to do well. They had a real, call it will to live, they had real optimism, whatever. It didn't always work out that way, but generally there was a, there was a correlation between these things. And the opposite as well. You know, people who, who really had just seemingly given up, you know, they, they oftentimes were not as likely to do well. But you definitely get a sense that people's minds greatly influence how well they're going to recover or heal from something or how well they're just going to do in general. There was a study that was done on incessory prayer. Yeah. Maybe you remember the incessory. Many studies. Many studies. Controversial, yeah. And that's, that's this idea that, you know, some a group of people will get together and pray for somebody. I thought what was really interesting, and I, you know, I'm curious what you thought of this, they found that people who were not religious who during time of great medical crisis started to pray, often did worse, did worse, which I thought was really surprising. And the way that it was explained to me was that someone who's not typically religious, if they now resort to prayer, they've probably given up. And this fear. At this point in in the stage of their illness, if they're praying mm-hmm. and they're not a religious person, they don't have faith yeah. that what is, it's going to work. They're, 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 they're fearful, Correct. as you say. But I think there's no doubt, I mean, I, and I imagine you would agree with this, that you don't even separate the mind and the body. What does it mean for someone who is sick, though? I, I, get, I understand that it's an experience. You but do everything to alleviate their distress, and that's where science and technology helps us a lot. We have the ability now to modulate that experience, take this unhealthy body and make it a healthy body. There's nothing that you cannot influence in the autonomic nervous system. You can change your heart rate, you can lower your blood pressure, you can modulate your immune system. Once you get down to where consciousness resides, then the autonomic nervous system becomes part of your ability to modulate it. Anxiety and depression are fundamental to human existence. Because we're the only people who wonder about our mortality, who, who can imagine old age, who can imagine infirmity, who can imagine that this experience is going to come to an end. So we are the only species that lives with this fundamental anxiety and it's never going to go away till we understand what is real and what is not real. If, if you can explain why you're having the experience, does that make it less mysterious for you? No, it's all a mystery. But let me ask you this: When, when you know, you've heard these things before, where where the people say, "Okay, I had a near-death experience and I saw the light. Mm-hmm. I saw a tunnel, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. I had this overwhelming feeling of empathy. Saw my family and loved ones who had passed away years ago." Mm-hmm. And, and then you hear these theories that are put forth, like uh, when you start to decrease blood flow to the brain, mm-hmm. the thing that's giving you the near-death experience, it also constricts your peripheral vision. So that's why you see the tunnel, the light of tunnel. Some have suggested that a chemical known as DMT, I think, DMT. Is, is, is released into the brain. Which is what's in ayahuasca, by the way. Which is what's in ayahuasca, and that may give you these 
hallucinations mm-hmm. or or these these overwhelming feelings of love and empathy and care for your long lost relatives. Mm-hmm. My point is that if you have some sort of explanation for the experience, doesn't it make it less mysterious? What we call explanations are descriptions. So uh, they're descriptions of what we think is real, and those are models of reality, and those models keep changing. In fact, that's the only way science uh, progresses. Mm-hmm. It uh, falsifies the old model and creates a new model till the next one gets uh, into the range of not being real. So we are constantly revising our explanations of what is reality. So, you know, the question you asked, it brought me to a very interesting memory right now. I was in medical school, and I read this experiment about two scientists. So in this particular experiment, they had kittens that were brought up in a room that had only horizontal stripes. Another group of kittens were brought up in a room that had only vertical stripes. And when these kittens grew up, one group of cats could see only a horizontal world. The other group of cats could see only a vertical world. Is it a vertical world or is it a horizontal world? Mm. So what is reality before you experience it and how is it experienced and how is it interpreted and where is that happening? The brain just follows your intentions and intentions and your interpretations of experiences. The very fact that you can put a knife through the brain means the brain has no experience of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's true. As someone who's actually done that, yes, <laughs> with purpose, it wasn't yeah. just a yeah. you know slashing sort of thing. It was. I don't think anybody who's listening should be thinking that I'm a critic of science. No, I think the science is the most amazing, most astonishing, most um, fantastic adventure that human consciousness has undertaken. But it's a dangerous adventure as well because it has the divine to heal the world and it has the diabolical to cause our extinction. Many years ago, I remember you and I were talking and I think I had gone through a tough thing and I can't remember what it was, thankfully. (laughs) That illusory experience is gone. But whatever it was, you you said something that stuck with me, and that was being empathetic, I think, uh, is incredibly good at relieving stress. And I I thought of it, and I did some reading about it after, you know, you and I talked, and this notion of reciprocal altruism, you know, the idea that we are good to one another, and it feels good to be that way. Mm -hmm. There's, There's no, nothing you're wanting in return. It feels good to actually take care of somebody else or to be empathetic. So if you take that and say, okay, it feels good to to want to take care of each other and all of our conditioned responses, you know, that we evolve with. And some are useful and some are not. Well, but how do we get from that point where it feels good to take care of one another and these conditioned responses that have protected and preserved our species to denying climate change, to going to war, to committing terrorist acts? How does that fit into your scheme of things? Because it doesn't seem like any projection of empathy or or desire to take care of each other and protect the planet would have those as the outcomes. Even though it's an illusion, why not upgrade the illusion? Because right now the illusion has turned into a nightmare. Okay, and that nightmare is our creation. And that nightmare, climate change, is our creation. Uh, the extinction of species, death, is our creation. 
and we can change that creation. So the next step in evolution, of human evolution anyway, is not about survival, it's about creativity. Hmm. You know, and creativity can only come by going beyond the conditioned mind. I don't think that your purpose now and my purpose as human beings is just the survival of species. We are gone beyond that biological evolution. But at least for human beings, evolution now can be a conscious choice. That as we evolve, we'll un unravel some of the mysteries of existence and also dormant potentials. I feel like it's like four years of med school every time I get to, to sit down with you. <laughs> no. I, I, learn, I, learn, I learn a lot. I appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. No, it's always fun to be you, with you. You, you know that you make people feel better when you're around them? Do you, do you project that? Because I feel better when I'm around you. Well, I, I have an intention that the only motivation of, for doing anything is to create joy. I love that. Mm. Everyone should spend time with you then. Thank you. Thank you, Sanjay. I think back now to the patient I misdiagnosed decades ago. I was looking at his body, but really it was my initial window into the power of the mind. Sanjay and I may approach it from different ends. He from how it works, me from the consciousness that flows in and out of it. But really we are talking about the same mystery. How amazing, how grand and enigmatic is the process by which we think, feel and imagine. I never cease to find it the truest wonder of the universe, one we may one day understand more fully, but not yet. From the depths of the human brain to the depths of the jungle, Join us next with the one and only Dr. Jane Goodall, a leading primatologist and anthropologist, and not to mention a personal hero of mine. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please find us on Apple to rate and review the show. Your support is greatly appreciated and can make a big difference for our collective success. Thank you and see you next time. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential.